Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. Rebecca Carroll's story is unusual. It's important and instructive because it's unusual. Her mother was white, her father black. She was adopted into a white family and then raised in a New Hampshire town where she was the only black person, the only one. But her story tells us a lot about blackness because she had to figure it out for herself. Her memoir, Surviving the White Gaze, outlines her tumultuous journey, navigating an intense and confusing relationship with her birth mother, her ambivalent relationships with white friends and boyfriends, and her struggle to get right with her own body. She's a friend of the pod and an elegant, vital writer, and she's coming right up. We're doing more cleaning than ever before, but it's hard to find eco-friendly cleaning products that actually work. Check out Drops, the laundry and dishwasher detergent pods that everyone is talking about. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, you'll see in no time how great their products are. Drops delivers to your door powerful cleaning from nature with plant and mineral-based formulas and low-waste cardboard packaging instead of plastic containers that end up in our oceans and landfills. Sign up for your auto shipments from Drops, laundry pods, and dishwasher pods to save big. You can pause, skip, or cancel anytime. Use code FRIENDS for 25% off your first order. That's Drops with two Ps. Check out all their custom cleaning solutions for every need. Visit drops.com and enter FRIENDS to get 25% off your first order today. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. And we have so much to talk about. Your memoir is... um, it covers a lot of ground. You have a, a story definitely worth telling. But I actually want to start with literally the title of the book, Surviving the White Gaze. You've written several books. So I have published five interview-based books for which I have written um, vignettes and um, interstitials, speaking of interstitial, uh, sort of connective tissue, but I've never written a 300 plus page book of with a narrative arc that's all my voice. I actually am seriously going to just focus on the, the titles here because your other books have these really evocative titles. Like I know what the red clay looks like and swing low and raw sugar and sugar in the raw. Excuse me. Beautiful though. Beautiful, evocative. And um. For your memoir, you went with hard and straight ahead. You went with something declarative. Surviving the white gaze. It is it is direct. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't I had never heard of the term until I heard Toni Morrison say it. 
And, and I've told this anecdote before, but I was working at Charlie Rose and at the time, and she was a guest and I was in the control room. I wasn't the producer on the, uh, on the segment because Charlie wouldn't let me for, that's another story. Um, but I was listening and watching and suddenly she started talking about the white gaze. And I was like, oh my God, it's one of those moments, right? Where I thought that's what it is. That's what I've been trying to get out from under. That's what I've been trying to frame, to square with, to reconcile. And it was, it was absolutely a pivotal moment for me. Now, understanding the ways in which the white gaze had been detrimental, had been damaging, had I had internalized, you know, sort of figuring out those moments took another 20 years. I mean, I'm, I, that's the truth. And this idea of surviving the white gaze, all people of color live under the white gaze. You had a particular circumstance that kind of highlighted it, perhaps. And talk about how you grew up. So I was adopted um, as an infant into a white family. My parents, both artists, my father, a naturalist, had had two biological children and decided that they wanted another child. And for reasons of uh, accessibility, children of color, less desirable, easier to adopt because they didn't, you know, they rented a farmhouse. They didn't own anything. Um, there were There were less hoops to jump through. And a very serendipitous opportunity presented itself, which is that my father, who was teaching high school art, had a student who became pregnant. She was white. Her older boyfriend was black. She didn't have a plan. My parents offered. It was a spoken agreement for three years um, until my mom started to panic. Uh, and finally, it became official. Um, and so... I opened the book, you know, with these first six years of my life on, uh, on what was called Pumpkin Hill in this gorgeous farmhouse with an apple tree in the front and fields, you know, miles beyond uh, the house gardens and fresh flowers and high tea and make believe and um, an, imagine, an imaginary imagined space um, because it was every bit as idyllic as it sounds. And it very much represents the white gaze because it is an existence that is void of blackness and of race. Um, and so when we left that bubble, my brother and sister could continue to sort of operate through that lens and use what they had internalized in ways that would be useful to them. Whereas everything that I had internalized played against me. Because there's an added wrinkle to how you grew up, which is you grew up in rural New Hampshire. Right. Sorry. Right. <laughs> so I want to make clear to people that the reason why this is so that you said you sort of grew up in a vacuum. The white gaze is the only gaze that was available. That is actually the thing that's amazing. That's a really impo important point is that and, and, I, and I write this in the first chapter, you know, I was the only black person I became the the town's only black person when I moved there as an infant. Um, and so grew up in the all white family, all white town, all white schools. Um, so yes, it wasn't just the bubble of of our childhood, our early childhood, but the everywhere around us. And so the white gaze is obviously default, prevalent everywhere. 
specifically as it applies to you, one of the fascinating things about the book is the way that it shapes you in the context of, of loving relationships, you know, uh, your family, uh, your birth mother, who you do wind up connecting with, um, boyfriends, friends, these people who I, I think we, you can correct me, but they seem to sincerely care and love about you, love you. But their white gaze is also a part of the relationship. So that's the sticky wicket, right? <laughs> Which is that the white gaze. So then we get into conversations about intentionality. We get intention. We get it. We get into conversations about unconditional love and isn't love enough and shouldn't love be everything. Um, but what 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 is really um, important for people, I think, particularly family members and, you know, those in relationship friendships is that if your white gaze does not see my blackness and how integral that is to me, then that's racist. (laughs) That's racist. So whether or not you love me, that's great. I mean, I was deeply loved. And I'm, I'm quite sure that that love has buoyed me in situations where I really needed it. But that does not change the, the racism that I endured within the context of that love. You grew up in a white family. You knew you were Black, but you were the only Black person. And so you had to kind of discover what Blackness meant. To me, right? But I didn't, but I didn't know that there that that i had to establish a feeling or a uh a definition or an explanation i didn't know that it required that and i don't know that now that i'm raising a black child i don't know that it does require that you can be your blackness and not have that questioned right what kind of black person are you oh you're you know you talk like a white person oh you you know you're this you're that or the other, which, you know, comes from within the Black community, but also, um, you know, there is this, this sort of um, assumption about the monolith, right? Um, which I think is changing and has changed certainly in the course of my lifetime. But, but I, when I was a kid and I was, would start to sort of, I often think of like the, um, you know, the, the, the matrix, you know, that scene when Keanu Reeves is just dodging. (laughs) And that's what it felt like when I first started experiencing racism, I was like, what is this? What is going on? When my birth, when, when, when my birth, when my, um, fifth grade teacher told me I was very pretty for a black girl, that was the outfacing racism, you know, that my friend and I were like, that's weird, but it's the part that the thing that she said afterwards that I internalized when, which was that most black girls are not pretty and scrunched up her face. She made it like, you know, so it was that these things started happening where I was like, Oh, I have to figure out what, what that means and how I will respond to that or engage with that. Um, And so, yeah, that was really what, what I began to do as a teen and on through my twenties, like, you know, when I established a black student union at the first college that I was at, I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew that I needed to create community. And I knew that I longed for that community. It feels to me a little like 
your parents were the epitome of sometimes what we talk about on the show, well-meaning white people, just the most well-meaning kind. And also they seem to embody this idea, the, 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 I don't see race version of, um, diversity or however you want to put it. Is that, am I reading that right? I I think it's more nuanced than that. Um, I think that they knew you, I mean, I, what I mean to say about that, I don't see race is that obviously everyone sees race, but they didn't interact with you very much about that side of you. So this is why I love having conversations because the language we use is so, so important and we learn things every time, but my blackness is not a side of me. And I think, but, but let's keep that because that's really important because I think that they did see that as being a part of me that I could sort of deal with, right? And that I would be able to grow into, but that they didn't have to necessarily talk about or create uh, role models for me. Um, and it's, it's not a side. It is all of who I am. Like I've had lots of, of folks from my from my childhood and teen years peers you know say to me we never saw you that way you know well that's the that's the problem that's the point one of the quotes i wanted to to get you to expand on is i'd always been black it's just that no one around me ever really saw me so that gets to the point that you're making that was in your 20s no no that was that was in high school. That was in high school. Yeah, because I had started, uh, we, we did this trip um, to Washington, D.C., you know, a special uh, group trip to learn about politics and government and whatnot. And um, I hung out with, with some Black kids that I had met um, uh, in Portsmouth on the, on the coast. And, um, and there was a boy, who, a Black boy, who I was just smitten with. Um, and I came back to um, my all-white high school and I used a vernacular term with a white friend. Um, and he said, oh, so you're black now. And what, that, what, what I meant when I said I'd always been black, they just didn't see me. It's that what he considered black was just a word. When in fact, I was one, code switching. <laughs> Two, had no idea that I was code switching. Th- three, realized when he said that, that my blackness was more than a word. It was, it's everything that I embody. But that he, ha- that he had the, you know, the sort of um, sense of entitlement of, of parsing my identity like that was... It was just a moment of, of, of realization um, that you don't get to tell me that my blackness is re- reduced or, or as small as a word. But then I began to realize, oh, this is what makes us feel close to one another, part of a community, a shared experience. It's shorthand. It's funny that shared experience, that shorthand, that ability to talk about um, 
the things you have in common sort of by, as a result of blackness. One of the ways it sort of is threaded through the book is your hair. that comes up on your trip to dc right it was both exciting and also just absolutely um confusing like what are all of these tools what are you doing with all of these tools i mean i had been to a black um hairdresser and she had you know she had worked her way through my hair and it felt really um it felt really both natural and bizarre. Nobody had ever put their fingers into my, not my parents had ever put their fingers into my scalp. Um, And so that was kind of extraordinary, right? I mean, this is one of the things that I tell white adoptive parents who invariably ask, what should I do with my black child's hair? Teach yourself and teach her and teach other people around you so that, that there is the sense that this is very ritualistic. It's very normal. It's very what you have to do. So I subsequently have never actually learned how to take care of my hair. And you tell me if, if that isn't a metaphor in some ways, the, the hair journey you've been on, because it's an integral part of you. It's literally part of you, right? I like to say, I like to say it's the, for adoptees, especially for black adoptees, it's, it's the first, it's the first roots we can lay claim to. Let's talk about your birth mother. We can both take a deep breath if you want. Um, Cause I, I will say that it was some of the most uncomfortable reading in the book. She wrote a letter when I was 11 years old and asked if it would be the appropriate time for us to meet as that had been sort of a part of the agreement. Um, what, you know, sort of an open adoption, not really an open, you know, open ish. And so my, my dad brought it to the family, um, which was very uncharacteristic of us to have a family meeting to discuss anything, but certainly this. But uh, I was incredibly eager and enthusiastic and just thrilled at the prospect. Um, and so they let me decide. Uh, in retrospect, not such a good idea, probably. However, so um, we met, I fe- you know, I fell headlong, head in love with her. Just, um, she was beautiful and witty and smart and um, confident. And um, she also, in, in this very sort of weird way, kind of perverse way, you know, she looked like all of these white girls whose um, capital, whose popular popularity capital, I was so driven towards. Um, so I felt like she was a proxy to that and I was related to her. So that gave me something that, that I, that I thought I could, um, that I thought, that, that I, I thought I could sort of use to kind of deracinate myself. Right. Like, so people didn't think I was too black. I actually have this white birth mother, which completely flipped later in my life. How do you mean it flipped exactly? Well, now, and I was just having a conversation with my son about this, you know, now I don't think of myself as mixed or biracial. I think of myself as black. Um, And he said, so are you just like pretending that you don't have a white birth mother? And I was like, I'm not pretending. I just don't feel like I need to acknowledge it. There's nothing about that whiteness 
that can, that that makes me more of who I am. I feel fully who I am as a black woman. Um, but so then, okay, what happens is, you know, she's ten years older than me, so I'm eleven. So she's sixteen. Sorry, sixteen years older. So I'm eleven. She's twenty-seven. Um, you know, still quite young, and trying to manage this daughter who suddenly comes into her life, who she doesn't really think is who she wants her daughter to look like. This is one of those relationships where, again, to the reader, it seems like there's a genuine love and caring and a remarkable amount of racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, and I hope this comes through in the book, which is that I would not have recognized or did not recognize how powerfully racist she was until much later because I loved her and admired her and also thought that she knew more than anybody else in the world. Um, but it were, this is the white gaze, which is like with my teacher, my white fifth grade teacher. She's my teacher. I'm supposed to believe what she says. She's supposed to be giving me information. Um, and then with my birth mother, I thought, well, she must be right about these, the things that she's saying about black men and black boys, um, which clearly, as you uh, stated, was just racist. And one of the things that makes this book fascinating and you such uh, a unique memoirist is that you had a memoir written about you. It almost killed me. It almost killed me. Um, And not because the contents of the book, which I didn't read until it was, you know, it was this sort of period of presenting United Front, um, selling the book, doing press together, um, which was a complete blur for me. I didn't even read the book all the way through out of self-preservation until several years later, um, which I write about in the book. but so it's funny, someone, my publicist was just mentioning the idea of doing Terry Gross. And I was like, oh, I did Terry Gross one time years and years ago. Like I told, it was a total blur, that whole experience of the tour with her. Um, but so, yeah, it was pretty, it was mightily uh, damaging to my psyche. You were commodified. I was. You know, what I, I guess what I was seeing is like, she's sort of doing this thing where she's like, I'm woke, for better, lack of a better word, but she's asleep. <laughs> because she doesn't just write about her life. Like, to take you on this tour is commodifying you. Like, against your will, kind of, too, right? I mean, I wanted to want to do it so badly. And I really felt like it was like my last noblesse oblige, right, to her. Like, okay, I'm going to do this for you. And then I'm out. I got to go. I've got to take care of myself. Um, And I almost didn't didn't make it out. But yes, you know, I think the book itself, you know, obviously I don't want to get too much into that because 
um, that's her story. And I, and I recognize the catharsis of it. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad for her to have written that, but yes, the tour itself was, was bizarre. And there's also a part in the book where you make the conscious decision to reject your whiteness. I would say you choose blackness and maybe that leads us into a, why I felt like you and this book are so great to talk about here in this season about forgiveness and reconciliation. Because sometimes reconciliation is not the right choice. Sometimes we choose and we let go of something completely. And I feel like that's one of the places in the book where you do that. Do you feel so that I am clear that reconciliation means means not choosing something to me reconciliation means coming together like you know we're just gonna we're gonna integrate here we're gonna repair some damage and we're gonna be and so to me what is happening in that moment is that you're like i'm not gonna be biracial i am not going to try and like figure out how these two things fit together i'm gonna choose so i feel like um I feel like the reconciliation there was with myself, right? And with the decision that whiteness is not going to have power in my body because it had done a lot of damage there. You know, that's one of the things I I think we talk somewhat about, but not enough about is the way in which we internalize racism, black folks internalize it to the point of physical illness. Um, and also, you know, it's somehow, it's somehow assumed that we will just endure and go on about our lives. I mean, it's where all of the, you know, the strong black women tropes come from because we do, we do endure, we do, but it does take its toll. Um, and I felt like that was that mo- a moment of whiteness is not going to have power and not going to take up space in my body. I don't want it. I don't need it. I love the idea of reconciling with self. I think that's a really powerful way to look at that moment, not letting go of something, but choosing wholeness in a different way. Yeah. And recognizing that you've always been whole. Because not even to me, I guess we can say it's not even choosing wholeness in some ways. It's recognizing what already is. It's recognizing what already is. And also let me not underestimate the power of maturation and wisdom. Breaking in for a few words from our sponsors. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Super Coffee. Super Coffee is the healthy, delicious alternative to sugary coffee drinks like Starbucks Frappuccinos and other iced coffee and energy drinks. Super Coffee is made to power your entire day. With its unique combination of caffeine, healthy fats, and protein, it provides a sustained, jitter-free energy with no crash. Did you know... 
that a Starbucks Frappuccino has 52 grams of sugar and 370 calories. That's like starting your day with a double cheeseburger. Super Coffee is just as delicious as a Frappuccino, but contains zero sugar, 10 grams of protein, and only 80 calories per bottle. Super Coffee's bestseller is their bottled coffees, but they also make tasty canned espressos, coffee creamers, and ground coffee. I love the ground coffee. It's smooth and the flavor isn't overpowering. It also doesn't make me anxious and jittery. Super Coffee has a 60-day money-back guarantee, meaning if you don't love it, you get your money back. No questions asked. We've worked out an exclusive deal for with friends like these podcast listeners. Receive 25% off your first purchase. I recommend one of their best-selling variety packs or bundles. It's a great way to try all of their delicious flavors. To claim this deal, go to drinksupercoffee.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That's drinksupercoffee.com slash friends. Super Coffee is also available nationwide in over 25,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, and CVS. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Parade. Parade prides itself on being a self-expression brand. They make creative basics in a variety of sizes from extra small to 3XL. Launched just over a year ago by Cami Tellez, all Parade underwear starts at $8. It features 14 different styles, including super comfortable thongs, briefs, and boy shorts, and has well over 20 expressive colors to choose from. I love the boy short. It doesn't write up. It never feels sweaty and gross. And the colors are celebratory. They're like tropical, like red and like yellow and orange. They make you feel happy. Sustainability, inclusivity, and ethical manufacturing and social justice lie at the heart of the brand. Currently, almost 100% of their fabrics are produced using certified, non-toxic, recycled content. And recently, they launched their newest fabric, Universal, the world's first carbon-neutral, edgeless underwear. In addition, Parade's packaging is 100% biodegradable and breaks down within 300 days inside a composting environment. They have committed to donating 1% of all profits to Planned Parenthood of Greater New York, and they can count Feeding America and the Loveland Foundation as just a few of the organizations they've proudly donated to over the past year. For a limited time, with friends like these listeners can get 25% off four or more pairs with code WFLT. Go to yourparade.com slash WFLT to get the pairs you want and celebrate who you are today. Yourparade.com slash WFLT. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. White people are often able to move through the world without ever thinking about being white. Oh, for sure. My parents, for example. I, that's throughout your book. That is what is happening in your book. And that's what I meant. Like, and so once you decide as a white person, like, I'm going to try to do something about that. You don't get a day off. Yeah. Yeah. And that really is like, that's one of the things things that, that bl- continues to kind of blow my mind just in terms of um, my family and trying to, and I'm going to use reconcile in a different way here, right? Reconcile with them uh, over not wanting to know, like not wanting to, 
you know, my book has not been received well by my family. And, you know, they feel like uh, they feel condemned. They feel, you know, that whole kind of um, good intentions and also reflex of defensiveness and, you know, so on and so forth. And it's just, I, I, I just did not anticipate that they wouldn't want to know what my experience felt like in that family, in my family. Um, but it's been a very long time of them using the muscles for something else. And when you live in a particular environment that does not challenge those muscles or to think any other way, they all still live in that same town. Um, and this sounds judgmental. It, it, it's just factual. I think you can't, you, you cannot repurpose those muscles if you're not in an environment uh, or surrounded by people who challenge you to do that. There's a scene in the book where uh, you're an adult and you're visiting and uh, someone says something about we're the only black people here. Like what, you know, and your dad's like, well, I'm, I'm a naturalist. That's right. That's right. And he's like, I'm a naturalist, you know, like I've, I have to live in the country. And I was like, hmm, that sounds really unaware, if nothing else. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I don't I, I have so many different variations on how I received that and how I received that throughout my life. And um, the sort of, um, you know, the, the kind of um, the way that it relates, the sort of Thoreauvian idea, the way that it relates with sort of um, man, what is the word, you know, men discovering the earth and the natural world and um, deciding what it was going to be and how to make it in remake it in their view. And I know that there's a, a word, a term for that. Um, but, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, the idea of the inventing the nature, which I think is what you're referring to, that nature is something that is separate from us and that I get to call this the wild because I see it as wild. I don't see the influence of other, other humans on it. Um, and then the idea that, that it, you made a choice, like you made a choice to do this, to live in a place where there are no black people, you know, and with a black child. And, you know, maybe you feel like you can defend that choice, but to simply like, be like, I just did it. Cause I'm a naturalist is um, hard. I had to be really good and grown before I could even, I mean, I had to be, so much of it was having a child and finding my people and being sort of, you know, buoyed and um, have the foundation and be really, really clear um, about my story and my truth and you know, sort of claiming the agency of that um, because it's tough. It's a tough story. I mean, I know I lived, you know what I mean? Like it, what, what was, what was mostly, you know, what I really was concerned about once I arrived at the place that I knew I was going to write, it was just that the writing would stand up to the story. Cause I knew the story was interesting. I, I feel like I want to say a couple more things about your relationship with your birth mother, because it's, it's intense. Mm, it was. It was intense from jump. 
it's intense in a way that I think a lot of people may not have experience with. And by that, I mean, she, she wanted to use you in a specific way for her needs. And she treated you from the outset in this way that made your relationship overly intense, maybe. And she subjected you to kind of like, she seemed to, like she had two children. So part of me was like, well, sometimes young parents, they don't know quite how to raise a child. So they wind up reading, uh, treating their child as an adu- a little adult, which she did. <laughs> but part of me was like, it seems like a little bit of a choice to do that because she didn't do that with her sons. Yeah. Um, I And I do think that that, again, without getting too much into her history, um, because I've done a lot of work, as you can imagine, decentering her. Um, but I think... Uh, it was exhilarating. Um, it was... Uh, like it, it felt like a um, the learning curve on how to be in her company was steep. But as I write in the book, when I hit that stride, it I felt like being high. It was like, um, it, it and I really do think that in some ways this is specific to adoptees, you know, because there is that that sense of abandonment that that primal severance, as as it's called, that you. Um, that you're always looking to heal and there's only one person who can do it and it's the person who gave birth to you, right? So I just felt if I could manipulate myself um, and be who she wanted me to be that I could continue to get that high. Um, But as it turns out, you know, my blackness and my proximity to blackness is what saved me from that. You know, starting with my professor who was like, that's not cool. I mean, he was problematic in his own way and that's another story, but he was the first black person who was like, what you're telling me is that she's racist. And I was like, really? Like I felt such a combination of like defensive and like this light bulb, like brain explosion moment. And, um, and so that's kind of the majesty of it all is that in the end, blackness, black folks um, saved me from that, that cycle, um, which became very toxic very quickly. And we'll be right back to wrap up our conversation with Rebecca Carroll about her memoir, Surviving the White Gaze. I'm excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Nebia. Backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, it's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. Despite using 45% less water, its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition. Nebbia's atomized droplets rinse shampoo and conditioner out of even the thickest hair, and it's easy to install. Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. 
If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. Nebbia balances functionality with a clean aesthetic to achieve timeless design. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom. White and chrome, spot-resistant nickel, matte black, and black and chrome. It feels like showering in a rain cloud. It's sort of like a steam room combined with a shower. Now, I don't take showers to wake up. I take them to relax. And Nebbia is like a trip to the spa. Also, this is a sincere tip. I use three command hooks to make like a Kindle holder in the shower. Put the Kindle holder in a baggie, slide it in. You can read in the shower. I will not tell you how long my showers now last. Nebbia also offers accessories such as shelves, curtains, hooks, and bath mats, which pair perfectly with Nebbia's stunning design. I've got the bath mat. It goes with everything. And the gray and white pattern means it doesn't show dirt. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower starts at just $199, and for with friends like these listeners, we have a deal. The first 100 people to use code FRIENDS at Nebbia.com will get 15% off all Nebbia products. They rarely do a deal like this, so jump on it. Go to Nebbia.com slash FRIENDS, that's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash FRIENDS to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code FRIENDS when checking out will save 15% on all Nebbia products. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash FRIENDS. Use code FRIENDS to save 15%. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. So, For the first year of the pandemic, I swear, I was pretty disciplined. I got up at the same time and went to bed at the same time. A year in, everything's kind of fallen apart. I moved to a new city and I experienced a one in a century freeze. So that probably didn't help. My sleep schedule is all over the place. But you know how I impose some order on my life? Breakfast. A healthy breakfast that I can have any time of day. Magic spoon. It's high in protein, has no sugar, it won't make me crash if I have it after noon, and it gives me something to burn if I actually have it in the morning. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net carbs in each serving. It's also only 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And exciting news. Magic Spoon will be releasing two amazing new flavors this month for a limited time. We're talking cookies and cream and maple waffle. And if that isn't the most comforting and indulgent combination, I don't know what is. This is the ultimate treat yourself combo. So make sure you get some while they're available. Or you can build your own box with flavors like cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. If you're listening in Canada, Magic Spoon now ships there as well. Now, I'm going to tell you, you're going to want to order the variety box because you can mix and match. It's like getting another three flavors. And also, pro tip, try the maple with peanut butter. Trust me. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to grab those limited editions of cookies and cream and maple waffle or get the custom bundle. And be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to save $5 off your order. This offer is now good anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, but only when you use our code at checkout. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it, for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Um, something we've talked about in this season is the need to be whole before you can repair other things. 
Like it's, it's difficult to go back and repair relationships if you're still broken or it's difficult to go back and even look at them. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that, that it's an interesting idea, this idea of being broken and or whole or partial or, you know, right. It does. And I think, um, you know, we see it a lot on social media, the country's broken, this is broken, so and so forth is broken. Um, I think we just really do have sort of mm, malleable uh, emotion. If we're growing, we are taking on iterations, variations, but that if our center is uh, set, then that mal- that malleable that malleability doesn't feel schizophrenic or doesn't feel like it's they're moving parts separate from you, but that it's part of who you are and you're you're doing more of it and you're and you know what I mean. I, I appreciate it's almost like pointing out that broken is the is the wrong metaphor because the kind of wholeness maybe that you're referring to and I'm trying to kind of get a picture of isn't an inanimate object that's whole or broken. Right. I also love this idea of reconciliation and forgiveness, that, that this is the season of that. Um, because I also think that, that forgiveness plays a part um, in this narrative of whole versus broken, broken versus whole, whether, when you're whole, how you can approach past relationships. Um, I'm, I am not, one of those people who believes that forgiveness sets you free. I don't know that it is, uh, it doesn't feel active enough for me Um, because I think that what what I have had to do is to figure out a place to put, um, to put the, the pain and the um, challenge and, you know, I was, I was existing in, you know, in those relationships, trying to figure a lot of things out, my birth mother, my boyfriends. Um, and I, I think it's my job now as a woman, as a partner, as a parent, as a, as a creative, um, to, to keep, to stay in, in, stay engaged with who I was in those relationships, but not, um, not feeling resentful, uh, not blaming myself or others, but that's different from forgiveness, isn't it? I, I think so. Yes. Um, one of the things that I hope we talk about, and we're talking about it now, and I hope we talk about it more in the season, is the, the ways in which forgiveness and reconciliation, at least as defined in certain ways, aren't necessarily all the right the right things to do. Um. I do think that what you're talking about, when I hear it, what I hear is acceptance, not forgiveness. And I think that that's also kind of what I'm thinking about when I think about returning to one's own hurt places, hurt relationships, is not that you need to forgive the people involved or even necessarily forgive yourself, although I think self-forgiveness can be very powerful, but acceptance Again, do not underestimate the power of maturation. <laughs> so just a few more things. A spoiler alert that you already spoiled, which is that you are married to a white man. 
I sure am. And you were raising a child. Now, do you use the term biracial? I'm curious. Uh, for me, no. For him, he chooses mixed, mixed and black. Um, and, you know, it's evolving very fast. You know, the way that he does his hair, you know, his role models, um, you know, definitely identifies as black. But I think that because he's light skinned, he is really grappling with, um, you know, we had a conversation around Meghan Markle, right? Like who's super light and is being referred to as a black woman because she is a black woman. Um, but, you know, for him, like the optics of that, the presentation, the phenotype is still, you know, um, like prevalent. Like he's trying to grapple with that. And I'm trying to, to give him the resources and also just the blackness to claim, right? Um, but he has to come into that, it, you know, he has to come into that with his peers. He has to come into that. Uh, he has to find the language um, to, to describe what feels right to him. But I, I said, not like just yesterday, I said to him, you don't have to define your blackness. You can be it any way you want to be it. And his father says the same thing, right? Which is, you know, there's, and, and our son was like, well, again, is that like just pretending that you don't exist? And we both said, it doesn't make your dad any less your dad if you decide to black identify. Right. So we have these conversations. Um, and, you know, I was thinking um, about something we were talking about earlier, but in terms of, oh, education and educating yourself. Um, you know, I met a white guy who was the white family I should have had or I deserved. He is, you know, culturally conversant. He thinks about these things deeply, but he doesn't want cookies for it. He doesn't, it's part of, it's fluid. It's part of our life. We have, we are a black family with a white guy in it. And I wanted to ask, and, and you, you talk about this a little bit in the book, that, that although you had uh, white boyfriends on and off your whole life, Chris, he's very different than the white guys that you dated. But you are also different. And of course you are. And that's what the book's about. And that's what maturity is about. But is it that wholeness that makes it different for you? I think, um, and I said this in our, in our wedding vows, you know, when you're younger and you're looking for a partner, people always say, just be yourself, just be yourself. But you don't know how to be yourself until you meet someone who reflects who you are. And he just, there was no explanation. There was no, you know, doubling down on, on how black I am. I just knew, I just knew that he, that he saw me. I tried to be something for other people. I tried to be something else that I wasn't. I tried to get really skinny because that's what all the white girls looked like. Um, and I was, I was awarded for it. I was rewarded for it by these white guys. Um, I tried to, you know, straighten my hair. I, the clothing, all, all of these, mostly aesthetic, because when you're in, in your twenties and teens, that that's what's matter. That's what matters because I will, I will say, you know, in terms of my intellect, um, and my interest and my social skills, you know, like 
most of the girls that these boys dated, you know, I mean, just how to translate that, that look for our podcast yeah. listeners. Could you please try to translate <laughs> I mean, the look that you gave? Okay, like, okay, like, <laughs> you know, very um, shallow. Okay. Again, one of the important and fascinating things in this book is the lesson for me as a reader that I got over and over, which is this idea that love is not a solution to white supremacy. Affection is not a solution to racism. Because again, these people genuinely loved, admired you, respected your intelligence. And yet, you, they harbored the white gaze. They were unaware of it. I think that is true. And, and maybe not just couldn't see, but benefited from. Um, and did not, did not allow for the ways in which it did not benefit me. And not just me, but other folks who look like me. You know, when I think back about the sort of casual indifference to the ways in which Black folks have been treated in this country, it's just, I, I, it, it's a certain rage, a certain kind of um, fury that, was really unleashed uh if i can put like a you know like a moment on it when my when my when mike ferguson was shot and <laughs> michael brown was shot in ferguson and my son asked if we were going to get shot because we're black and i just thought his the astuteness i mean i think he was nine um and that and the reality of that and that that reality was never identified in my family growing up that's a, there's a rage there that I, that I don't know that I will really ever quite let go. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for having me. It was really, really a joy. Thank you. If you are listening to this podcast, you like politics. But if you're listening to this podcast, you also want your discussions to be respectful, deep, thoughtful, and also challenging. Pantsuit Politics is a nationally acclaimed podcast dedicated to having political conversations that inspire rather than deplete us. Pantsuit Politics is a podcast for real conversations that help us understand politics, democracy, and the news while treating each other like human beings. The hosts, Sarah and Beth, are both Kentucky moms, lawyers, and friends who create an informative, grace-filled space that looks at politics holistically. They blend hard facts with important cultural and social undercurrents so you don't miss the big picture. My favorite podcasts are shows that feel like I'm sitting down to a conversation with friends. Not necessarily people who come to the topic with a strong opinion, but people who talk things out and maybe even change their minds. Pantsuit Politics is a show like that. Listen to Pantsuit Politics every Tuesday and Friday on Apple Podcasts. That was Rebecca Carroll talking about her book, Surviving the White Gaze. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Winnie Pastrick still somehow finds time to distribute food for World Central Kitchen. I want to let you know, there is a therapist shortage in the country. If you've ever thought about getting a therapist, get one. 
And if you can't find one using your insurance plan, we do have a wonderful sponsor, BetterHelp, that can match you with someone to talk to via phone or video. You do pay out of pocket, but it's pretty affordable and they also provide some financial aid. This isn't an ad, by the way. I'm just worried about all of us, basically. The end of the pandemic seems within sight, but our ongoing trauma will leave scars that we'll need tending to. We're not going to just bounce back, and that's okay. You don't have to get a therapist, but I'd love for you to have someone who's on your side to remind you that you're okay. Someone besides me. But I will remind you. You're okay. You're enough. Take care of yourselves. <laughs> 